Hyperno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hyperno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Falter Road and welcome to Hyperno Goethe. My guest today is Donica Morgan, barrister at law and son of the late Dermot Morgan. But perhaps more importantly for today, also son of your mother, German national Susanna Morgan. So, um, Donica, tell me about having a German mother. Actually, tell me about her name, first off. Well, uh, she's Susanna Morgan, born Geborene Gamatz. Susanna Gamatz, when she came here in August 1977, she's from Hamburg. Uh, she came from, had sort of what I would describe as a charmed life. Her parents are both teachers, my grandparents. Um, they lived in Blankenese, which is this very well-to-do neighbourhood. And um, uh, she was into show jumping uh, from a very early age. And she was in the Norddeutsche und Flottbecker Reitverein, which was like the the North German RDS. She came over with two friends and a horse in August 77, met my dad and on an, uh, for her first day he was working in the superintendent's office in the RDS. What what brought her here in, in August horses. 77? Oh, okay. H- horses and adventure. And she was of that generation as well who would have read Bowles Irish Journal and would have been kind of intrigued about this. She said, she said to me that there's only two places she ever really wanted to visit. One was Ireland and the other was Iceland. So, I mean, she could have ended up in Reykjavik with a stand of comedian but instead she came to Dublin, I suppose. But uh, that, that's how she how she arrived she was going to go to the horse show yeah and, and was your dad then was he working at the horse show or what was he yeah he had a kind of I, I, in my mind's eye it was a temp job to pay the bills while he was doing whatever else it was sort of interesting to him but he was working in the superintendent's office so the story is that he, she arrived there with her friends and the, and the horse anyway, and she was told to go and visit the big boss who was him it didn't take very long for him to, to charm her so apparently he lost his pen a million times she thought it was kind of cute because German men are very organised and she, he was quoting Shakespeare and two weeks later or whatever it was she went back home to her parents to say I'm giving up my law course and I'm marrying this guy <laughs> so did then her parents then see him as a catch I, th- I think they were kind of in, uh, fascinated by him. I, 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 it's a little bit like, I suppose, um, sitting in the front row of a Billy Connolly concert. You know, I think, I think they were kind of terrified and kind of enthralled at the same time. They were very, I mean, they loved him. They were, they were crazy about him, I think. And I think from, from their perspective, it was like, you know, if you love this guy and he's good to you, whatever else, you know, enjoy your life. You've only got one life. So they were fascinated by him. They didn't understand him all the time, but they, 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 they were fascinated by him, all right? When you were born and when you were growing up, uh, you were brought up bilingually and in a way half German. So what what was that like in the Dublin of the of the nineties? More exotic than I realised. Like I'm I'm sort of there at the stage of my life. I'm forty two and I'm I'm just looking back and at my life and going what have I done? <laughs> and uh, I, I think at the time, I didn't really appreciate just how different we were to our neighbours. Um, South Dublin, I suppose, is like a microcosm of the rest of the country in that at the time it was very parochial. And sort of, I suppose, naively xenophobic, if that makes any sense. I think not out of any sense of hatred or whatever, but there's a kind of a, an ignorance about foreigners. Some people would say ignorant things, but I think that in my mind, I, I didn't really notice any particular difference other than we went to the German school. It was in Klonski. It was 15 minutes away by foot but we were we were different we didn't go to mass we weren't playing for Kilmacud Croaks you know there was loads of stuff that we weren't part of so I mean I, I would go back to Mount Marion to visit my, my mother and I would go this is 
this is my this is my hood you know i know i know every brick every every you know bit of footpath but you know there's a lot of stuff i'm not really party to and that's because i wasn't part i wasn't in the local national school i wasn't in the we weren't at all religious so we weren't in the church either so I suppose uh, things like you say like Kilmacud Crooks or GAA or even rugby didn't mean much to Germans did it? No and I mean from from our point of view like we were a League of Ireland household like my dad was a Shamrock Rovers and a UCD fan latterly and then my mother was Haas Fow and and so we grew up watching going down to Belfield in the old what Jerry Thorney used to refer to as the Stadium of Light down in Belfield Um, you know Three, you know, three people and a dog and us, and you know, it was, it was drinking Bovril and eating Mars bars in the middle yeah. of winter, and it was it was lovely because we got to be with our dad and and, and his friends, and they're very funny. People they still are very funny and very enjoyable to be around. And then we'd have the the whole Bundesliga thing. So you know, Ga wasn't a thing in our house really. My dad would have been aware of it. You know, because he would have gone to to the local Christian brothers, and he and he would have been kind of plugged into that stuff. But we weren't. So maybe maybe I have to stop you there and straight away get into it. when it comes to Bundesliga. Uh, so were the family um, Hamburg SV or were they San Pauli fans? As well, uh, Hamburg yeah, Spafine, yeah. uh, all the way. They lived, believe it or not, that th- th- some of this is just by chance because there was a school on Hellgrundweg, which is in the Volkspark where the stadium is. And my grandfather was a teacher there. He might have been the head teacher there, actually. And it was the first full day school in Hamburg. So, And they lived on the premises. So they were living next door to the stadium. So it was inevitable. They said, like, well, what we do, we'll go across. And so my, my mother worked for the club and stuff like that as well. So she came over with all this kind of stuff. San Pauli, latterly, I, I had an exchange partner who's, who's a mad San Pauli fan. He's from, from the other side of the city, from Harburg. Yeah. So I, I've, I've, I've a love for San Pauli as well because I, I've had some, great, had some great times there. But I suppose you can't disown your, your, your family club I'm afraid I'm kind of stuck with it. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't deny that. Yeah. And and they're both terrible. So there's not really like it's it's, it's Hobson's choice. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you're saying same Bundesliga. I think they spend a lot of time playing in the Zweites Bundesliga if they're if they're they, playing against each been, other. They've they've been bullied Zwei, which is just exactly where they should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So growing up German, I mean, was there a sense that uh, I mean, if your mom was at home, I suppose, was she making German food? Was that your evening meal? Was that more based in a German world than an Irish world? Yeah, it would have been. I mean, my my mother's primary complaint when she came here was the fact that the Irish people boil their vegetables to the point of you know submission. You know, it's like really soggy vegetables. She she'd come home from these these dinners out that they would have for for my dad's work or whatever. She'd just resent the food. It was just terrible. So yeah, it, there would have been a lot of stuff like like baked goods, like birthday cakes in our house were always mamma kuchen. They weren't like anything anything kind of with some of the gooey stuff we'd find in Ireland. Tell us what marmakuchen is. How is that made? It, it's it's very dry. It's sort of it looks like marble. So like one part is white and I think is vanilla in it and it's kind of very tasty. And then the other part is kind of more cocoa-y and it's done in a kind of a, a in, in our house it was done in a, in a Google Hub tin. So it came out looking different. It looked like a ring and it was a very dry cake. It's no reflection on her on her on her bake. <laughs> it's just the way it's supposed to be. What about what about cafe on Kuchen? Because even back in the nineteen eighties, coffee was was uh, exotic enough. Where you where you were house where coffee was important. It really was, as you as you said rightly. I mean, instant coffee was the thing that was probably very exotic in Ireland in the early eighties. Uh, my grandparents would have sent over care packages with packets of coffee, so like we get really nice stuff when they would send over stuff. So, so your but mother was my, like a, a kind of a refugee in a way from from Germany. Yeah, that's taking refuge from the developed world, I suppose. But I mean, that's not not to be mean about Ireland, but I think Ireland at yeah. the time we for, we forget just how far we've come. <laughs> you know, if you go to like. As I understand, your studios are quite near Three FE, which is a, which is a very fancy little um, establishment. You know, where you get really fancy coffee, which is all kind of like hand roasted and oh, it's all kind of shaky, Mickey kind of stuff. You know, back then it, re- it was really grim. But I, mean, I remember my my dad loved coffee. 
my earliest memories of him was actually drinking very, very strong leaf tea because he just couldn't get decent coffee. When you were out so. with your mom and your brothers even uh, and you were speaking German out in the supermarket or just out in the world, was there any sense of embarrassment? No, I mean, I was completely unaware of it. I didn't think it was uh, so much of an issue, really. I suppose when I when I became kind of some of my, my when I was a tween or in early teens, I would have been embarrassed about anything, frankly. So like, it might have been there might have been some sort of subconscious thing that I do remember that we went through phases where like she would talk to us in German, we'd answer back in English, and that's and that still happens now. Like when my brother and myself go to visit her, you there'd be sort of periods where like she would speak in in German and we'd answer in English or vice versa. And actually, now that we we're both married. I mean, she'll sometimes speak in English to be polite to our respective other halves. You're very like my wife speaks um, really good German, you know. So it's not it's not a difficulty, but I think we just kind of slip in and out of each of them. But I, I, I've made more of an effort to speak German to her than English. Yeah, and I suppose you, you're bringing up your children with German. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose in the Ireland of today, having children growing up in a bilingual household is a fairly normal enough thing and not that unusual but uh, when you were growing up it was unusual wasn't it it would have been very unusual um i've, I've no recollection of, of anybody else who was apart from the the, the, the other women who like my mother was attracted they were all attracted to each other these these german women who'd married irish men you know so there would have been a lot of a lot of these people who would have been in our kind of orbit who would have had similar experiences but i mean met marion I, I'm, I'm not aware of of that many people certainly multilingualism wasn't wasn't a thing i live in carlow town our neighborhood is very multilingual we've got polish neighbors we've got moldovan neighbors we've got irish neighbors whatever else so you hear as a matter of course you just hear a load of different languages mm-hmm. and, and nobody really minds it it's just that's the way it is when it when it comes down to um how irish people see the germans do you think irish people have a good um sense of germans or, or is it just a kind of stereotype by and large i don't think germany is is really on irish people's radars at all my sense of it is, is that they have a couple of sort of stock ideas about Germany you know and you'd see it even like in, in football I went mad a while back because there was coverage of the, the ladies soccer team was playing Ireland was playing Germany and there was this whole thing about you know Ireland takes on the German machine which, which I which I took as being kind of dehumanising and somewhat misogynistic language anyway but the thing is I don't think that people really think that much about about Germany it's a little bit like um, I suppose you know the World Trade Organization you know it's a thing that's probably has an impact on our lives but we don't really pay much attention and I, I suspect it's the same thing if you really push people they probably give you the stuff like well the Nazis or you know all that kind of stuff or football and, and also as well we are we are informed by the British media because of our, our proximity and even like over Christmas I was, I was surprised how many times Dan Busters was shown at the telly so yeah, yeah do you think there would be kind of um, how should I put it almost more of an anti-German feeling because the Irish people have been exposed to so much British media from Dad's Army down through many kind of standard sitcoms and stuff no, I, I I wouldn't necessarily go that far. I think I think people j- just aren't really that. It's not on the radar. I don't think it's even that. that, that I I would hear a lot of people saying, for instance, when we talk about it, like the two things I'll always talk about at the drop of a hat are, are are my kids in Germany. <laughs> so, but what I've discovered is people say, well, I've never been there. Uh, you know, I, I've I've no concept of it. It's just not a holiday destination for Irish people, sure it's not. No, it isn't. I mean, there's people of a certain age would have spent the summers there working in factories and stuff like that. So you get people in their 50s, particularly men who would say, oh, I had a great time. I was living in Munich on a campsite and we had completely bananas and um, I don't think we were particularly welcome, (laughs) to be honest. But from that that Uh, point of view, yeah, exactly. But from that point of view, I I think that it was, um, you get that kind of experience. But I think England is different because they've sort of reproduced or created a sort of a, a post memory 
kind of grotesque version of, of memory of the Second World War, which is which is the prism through which they see a lot of their their world, unfortunately, mm. in the media. What about then, you know, that stereotype that Germans are efficient or clinical or have no sense of humour? Is mm. that your experience? Is that what your mother's family are like? Are they clinical and efficient and have they no sense of humour? Oh, no, I think they're extremely funny. I think they're great crack. Uh, I, I think Germans in general are very funny. They do take the world very seriously. To that extent, it's true, but they're not more efficient. They're really good at using Archley for folders. And, and that's, the, that's, the, that's the difference. Good stationery doesn't make efficiency. You know? <laughs> you buy brilliant stuff now on Amazon. And, and, and like, yeah. I know when we've gone on holidays, my wife has always been like, she loves stationery, uh, you know, and, and I've, I'm, I'm quite um, open to it. So yeah. but you, you go into the stationery section of, of, of a German department store, it's, it's like, it's a totally different world, but you could, you could easily see why people would think that Germans are efficient, you know, because they got dividers. Got fabulous stationery. I don't know if you much know much about the new Berlin airport, but that didn't work out very efficiently uh, for them. Oh, not a bit. And, and and the same thing, like, in I mean, it was a total disaster. It's the same with, with the, the, the Elbfiller money in Hamburg, although that turned out right in the end. That was, again, 10 years out, over, overdue, yeah. way over budget, yeah. a total white elephant. And it, it, people get used to having these things. Yeah. Germans aren't, aren't any more efficient than we are, I would have thought. And I don't know if you've come across that uh, Stuttgart Hauptbahnhof. I think they've had that 12 years. They've been digging a hole yeah. in that to try and fix that one too. Yeah, um, and, and again, that, that, was a re- that was a real kind of source of... Um, I love this word Wutbürger, you know, these, these angry citizens, you know, these people who are generally oh, yeah. frustrated who I think need to just relax and drink some of their wonderful beer. And, you know, um, so the, so the Wutbürgers were, were very unhappy about the, the Stuttgart Hauptbahnhof, is that? Yeah, they were. They were. And I, I, to be honest, I don't know what their problem was. Yeah. And I, I, but, but that's the thing, like they get exercised about stuff like that. And then I, I think I think in a way it, it's because um, they do take life too seriously and they don't like things being interrupted too much. But I but again, like that was a total schmuzzle. You know, there's no, there's no way that was a, a, an example of German efficiency. So tell us a bit then about uh, your mother's family. Um, what are they like? Where were they from? Well, um, I suppose going back in, in, into the past, my my grandfather was from Pomerania, from, from a little village called Schlönwitz, which was near Schieferbein, about 80 kilometers east of what's now Stettin. So it's, it's, in, it's within Poland now. My grandmother was from Hamburg and her parents were from her parents were from Rostock and from Silesia. And the Silesian connection was kind of interesting because my great grandfather was a guy called Johannes Navrat. He was from near Breslau, or Raswaf as it is now. Um he was a stoker on the ship and he was the only person in my family who was a fan of De Valera, apparently. Um <laughs> which which I only yeah, discovered yeah. a few years back was when when Dev was sticking it to the, the League of Nations, I think um your man had a sneaking regard for him, and also because he took on the Brits, yeah. and he'd been he'd been in India for a long time, and he'd seen what what the British had done in India, and he wasn't particularly fond of them. But um, so anyway, they they all ended up in Hamburg. At, at, long mm-hmm. story short, my my grandfather's family ended up in, as displaced persons north of Hamburg. But does, my that, grandparents does that legacy? Because obviously, a lot of those places uh, ended up in Poland after the Second World yeah. War. So does that legacy of them coming from there have a certain give them a certain viewpoint? As, as modern day Germans, do they look back with great nostalgia as to their lost um, Ostpreuche kind of places? Does I, I was never conscious of. It. I mean, all the, all the ones who lived there. I mean, bar a couple of my, my mother's cousins who were who were who would have been very young when they left. They were they. I know in, in Silesia, I know the Silesians were, were quite bitter, uh, and, and the East Prussians would have been as well. Um, we had a, my grandfather's a friend um, who who 
lived lived in Hamburg for most of his life. But it was like you, you can take the man out of Tilsit, but you can't take Tilsit out of the man. So yeah. he, he was still very much kind of like I, I, a displaced person all of his life. But mm. my grandfather's family, they weren't. I mean, they, they would have spoken very matter of factly about their experience in their childhood, and they would have probably been nostalgic for for what they what they missed. You know, but they wouldn't want to go back. They weren't going. Oh my God, I can't believe we're here in this this terrible, you know, international cosmopolitan city where everyone's beautiful. And, yeah. You know, our, our standard of living has improved. You know, I, I think they were quite quite okay to be where they were. But I think you know, dur- during the Bosnian War, for instance, I remember some of the older ones talking about uh, their experiences. Yeah, you were saying there about um, the displacement, and uh, there was quite a lot of Germans at the end of the Second World War had to move, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I, I read somewhere that it was in the region of about 12 million people because a lot of Central Eastern Europe wouldn't populated by ethnic Germans, so they ended up coming west. And, uh, you know, from my from my father's family, mm-hmm. they, they, they arrived in March 45. They they joined the trek to, to the west and, and ended up in a place called Kautenkirchen, north of Hamburg. And is um, there some Irish connection with Gdansk, with Dansburg, Danzig as well? Yeah. Some Irish family there- in charge or something? Well, do you know what? The only one I know of is um, a chapter in the Irish Journal. Um, I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but there was a, there's a chapter where they, they talk about the rain and um, they end up talking to an Irish man who, who had been in the concentration camp near Gdansk, which was called Stutthof. That's the only one that I'm, I'm, I'm aware of. But uh, because Irish have been everywhere. Like, we're, we're devils for that. When you mentioned the Devalier thing, I think it might have been a Devalier appointee was on some commission who were looking at the division he, he was, of Danzig or something was that he was he was the secretary general of the League of Nations. Oh, maybe and, that was it. Yeah, uh, Danzig was was a was a, a free city under under the League of Nations auspices, mm-hmm. I think. And what happened was he probably would have been involved in in, in relation to that. But uh, but Gdansk is his own sort of interesting little history, mm-hmm. um, which is for another podcast. But yeah, I think Dev would have been would have been involved in that kind of stuff. Going back to when you were saying about that Wutburger, the when the the citizens get really annoyed about things. Oh yeah. Do you ever find then that you have a slightly different perspective when people say, "Oh, it's so frustrating here because the Lewis line isn't finished, or because the children's hospital is delayed, and only in Ireland could that happen." Do you kind uh, of have a different way of looking at those kind of things because you know it's not only in Ireland. I think to a certain extent I, I, I would. I, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that in Ireland we do, when we do things badly, we do them spectacularly badly. But I'm, I'm not under any illusions that it's unique to Ireland. I think some of the problems we have in Ireland are extremely unique. I think, I think, for instance, the, the, the sort of the fear border, bordering on hatred of poor people that we have in Ireland is, is very unique to, to our historical experience of poverty and all, and all that. I find, though, that when things aren't done right here, I, I kind of view it through the prism of being a German rather than being an Irish person because I look at these things not being done properly and I go, why didn't you just do it properly the first time? So, you know, like the, the thing that in Ireland, for instance, there's not a public official who can't resist a press conference, you know, or, or, or a press release. So when the National Children's Hospital was, was, was announced, they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait until they had all the facts in front of them. And then the cost is spiraling out of control because they're doing it all wrong. And mm-hmm. it's, it's all very kind of cart before the horse stuff that, that does happen in Ireland. The thing that the, about the loo that was particularly Irish was whichever local gomer it was who was who was responsible for this and I and you know I hope I'm not being too cruel about them but thought that all the stops should have kind of an individual look you know because with light rail no it's a tram <laughs> you know you just have a stop maybe a ticket machine and a shelter so you don't get drenched in the weather and that's all you need and it was when a Spanish company came in and kind of pointed these <coughs> things out you know the the way that we sometimes lose the run of ourselves I, I think was kind of reined in so that's the kind of stuff where I would I would really see red and, and I, I view it through my, my, my German eyes if you like rather than my Irish eyes Back with your German eyes then we were talking about how the Irish might understand Germans but with your German family uh, with German friends and stuff do you think that they have a good idea of what Irish people are like or again do they just have a stereotypical view? <laughs> I think they like us I think that we are 
to a certain extent we're kind of lumped in with the with the British because we're kind of over that part of the world you know that'll probably become less and less now with with, with Brexit but I think that there's they're generally positively disposed towards us they like us they like the fact that we're free spirited they like the idea that you know we go out we have a good time and you know they like the fact that we don't take life too seriously or that's what they, they might perceive I think but you know again I don't know if there's any particularly deep understanding or, or knowledge of Ireland there are certainly Irish enthusiasts out there there's there's a large body of hibernophiles over in Germany you know and my mother would always tell us very proudly when we were kids you know the Dubliners sold out and wherever it was the, yeah, yeah they always in, 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 in Hamburg you mm. know and Madonna you know was playing to a half house or whatever it was they would have a, an enthusiasm for Ireland I, I did a lot of work as a tour guide um, and there'd be busloads of Germans coming over and having you know really wanting to see Ireland and seeing what they but also I suppose wanted to see the Ireland that they thought Ireland was so they weren't necessarily interested in, in things that I would have found interesting but they wanted to see the Cliffs of Moher you know yeah. and they, they want to see sheep probably not that many uh, um, German visitors to Carlotown Believe, would you actually believe there is a Carlo uh, east of Hamburg? <laughs> I discovered, okay. but uh, no. Again, I I don't think there is much much uh, much tourism. There's Maybe a Palatine. There's a Palatine museum somewhere from Germans who came over hundreds of years ago. I think that's that? I think that's down in Limerick. The Palatine yeah, German is actually were, were yeah, down that's in right, yeah. There's a connection, I believe, with Luxembourg. All right, down in Lachlan. Okay. With um with Saint Wilbrod, who's the patron saint of Luxembourg. And we claim him even though he was from Yorkshire, I believe. But uh you yeah, know, if gets a few more yeah, tourists, I don't yeah. mind. <laughs> when when it comes to German culture then and, and that side, do you have a particular interest? Do you um would you be very familiar with German literature or is it German music or film or, or is it German history that appeals to you? I, I would have a, a sort of a general interest in all of those things. Um, and I suppose because of my background, it, it does influence my my interests. So like if I see something about Germany on the telly, I'll tend to watch it, you know, until I realise it's nonsense or, or whatever else. Um, I, I loved, there was a great programme that Andrew Graham Dixon did on BBC4, which was the sort of the history, art history of different countries. He knew one about Germany, which was fantastic. It was a great series on that. And I, I lapped it up because they, they were talking about everything from Lucas Cranach to, to um, you know, in medieval art to... Oh, what was the name of the guy? Gunter, um, not Gunter Netzer, Gunter. Uh, football, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a Gunter Huygens, who was the. Um, I must check it up now. But anyway, he he planted like a hundred thousand trees in Castle for the for the documentary. Oh, yeah, that's like, right. Yeah, yeah. It was the the Olympics for for modern art. Yeah. And I, I myself and my wife spent a lot of time. We've got friends in Castle who who lived in Ireland for for a while and. Um, like it's an amazing city, and and but like again, I think the way that what I like about about German in terms of art, the fact is that it's not as elitist as as it sometimes can feel here. It's not unattainable. I was going to ask you that. Do you think that um, for what we sometimes consider high art, and sometimes push it out a little bit away from ourselves, like the visual arts and even opera and classical music, that they're a bit more ordinary in German than they are here? Would that be right? I think they are, but I think that's only because the the connection between pop music and classical music isn't entirely lost over there. I mean, I suppose when I was a kid, there would have been a lot of it on the radio and on, on, on telly over there. And that's not to say that, that there's something like, I, I, I don't know if you're, the average punter over in Germany wakes up in the morning and goes, do you know what, I think I want to listen to Das Lied von der Erde. And I don't think they're into that. Like, mm. um, my, my interest would be like, I love Mahler. So I, I, I'd, I'd like to listen to his stuff or, or Bach or whatever, you know, and, and get my head around it. But I do think that they're more open to stuff there I suppose if you like Middlebrow culture to a certain extent that we don't I think people might see Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan, Sullivan as being yeah, unattainable yeah. over here yeah. I wouldn't be a classical music expert now by any means but there's a bit of a jump there between Mahler and Bach isn't there well there is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of skipping yeah. but I, I like 
I suppose what my mother brought to our house in terms of, of culture was it was the books, it was the Thomas Manns, it was the Stefan Zweigs, and the music was what she had. She had records of mm. Beethoven and Bach. And she's not she's not an expert, you know. My grandparents were, were really into opera and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um and and they we would have inherited quite a few, few CDs and stuff like that from them and I would have listened to them and gone okay I like Schumann or I like you know I like that bit of Wagner I don't like that bit of Wagner yeah. and that would have that would have been quite and uh, enjoyable yeah the Mann brothers are they from Hamburg is, it, is that North German stuff Lübeck Lübeck okay yeah Lübeck yeah. so yeah they're not far and actually believe it or not when we were when I was nine or ten there's photos somewhere in the house here we went on a day trip to Lübeck and my grandparents made a point of bringing us to the Buddenbrook house okay so there's a museum there and we went there and like I don't know Thomas Mann means nothing to me Manfred Mann was a thing at me the time <laughs> just the mighty Quinn uh, maybe, maybe for I, those who don't know uh, uh, Donica could you give uh, just a little bit about the Buddenbrooks. The, the Buddenbrooks is this massive novel. It's a very thick novel as well. It looks like a long read, um, but it's uh, about um, this merchant family in Lübeck who's sort of in decline, but um, sort of all about them and their relationships and, and, and whatnot. I, I've, I have hasten to add, I haven't read it. <laughs> um, There's a film. I think it's a film, isn't there? Or even a couple of film versions. Yeah. There are, there are. Um, I read Death in Venice, um, which again brings us back to Matter because that was used in the, in the the, the movie with um, Dirk Bogart. But um, did you but did no, you enjoy that or did you read it because it was a classic or something? Because I was studying it in college. Okay, um, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was on the curriculum. Yeah, yeah. Not, I, I won't lie to you. There's 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 a few things. I read a book by Golo Mann that my grandfather gave gave me, the son of Thomas Mann, which is about growing up uh, in 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 Germany in that that period when the Nazis came to power. And I thought that was that was uh, enthralling, but I can't remember the name of it. Um, but that was good. Yeah. So anyway, his, so his, his the, the house where Buddenbrooks is purportedly set is a museum there to the man's and, and I suppose in, in, in Lübeck they'd be quite proud of, of him. You were talking about um, Castle isn't that where the Grimm brothers were from there's a Grimm museum in Castle did you ever get there? Yeah there, there is um, I didn't go to the Grimm museum oh. I went to the museum of death uh, which is brilliant <laughs> there's a whole museum <clears throat> Castle is and this is something that I think Irish people don't understand about Germans Germans, I th- Germans are quite whimsical and don't realise it a lot of the time Um and so the castle is a is a brilliant city and if you want to see how the germans really live castles the place to go um and normally i'd say hamburg but go to castle as well because it's it's the size of cork city it is insane the stuff that they do they have loads of museums there's loads of culture there's great crack uh, in normal times um it's not so was aesthetically the prettiest city because it obviously got fair knock during the war but it's it's really really cool and it's in a beautiful region so like Hessen that part of Hessen where Castle is from North Hessen it's absolutely stunning it, it's and kind of um, a bit in the middle of nowhere though because even for Irish people who might get for a weekend to places like Berlin or Hamburg the castle is not really it's not really near near those kind no, of places no it's not I mean the thing is that like you can you can fly into Frankfurt and you it's, it's maybe an hour and a half by train up to okay. Castle I would say, like, if you had a week or two and you, and you really wanted to find it somewhere interesting, it's great, great to go. Um, but you're right; I mean, you'd have to be dedicated, I suppose, yeah, to yeah. do the trek. But it, um, it, it's a cool, it's a cool train ride as well. Maybe jumping a little bit to a different, a different topic. But um, yeah, when when it comes to your dad, obviously uh, he was really well known for his satire for Father Ted mm-hmm. and for those things. But I don't know that many people know that he was married to a German and that clearly he had a really good understanding of German culture. Do you think that that comes about in much of his work? 
short answer is probably not as much as you, you might think. Like he wasn't a student of Carl Valentin or, you know, Lorio or stuff like that. But I mean, I, he was interested in Germany from, from, I suppose, a young age. And again, maybe the, maybe the, the, the opening that was, he was fascinated by war movies, but he, he sort of expanded that. There is the one sketch he did in Scrap Saturday where he was playing Hahi. Some listeners may recall, that even though it was a long time ago, he used to think that Charles Hahi was the Taoiseach at the time. He always had ancestors from different parts of the world. And he did this great one about Germany where he, he had a cousin called Helmut Hahi and um, his great uncle, uh, Admiral von Hahitz, you know, who was on the Graf Spee, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. And he would have had a, qu- quite a good awareness of it. He taught himself German, like he actually made a lot of effort in the 80s and was fluent enough to insult an Austrian taxi driver who called him English. So the, 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 the incident was that the taxi driver said, well, you're speaking English, so you must be English. He says, well, you're speaking German, so you must be German. So the taxi driver took the hump and that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't the end of the taxi ride. No, 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 but he didn't get a tip. Um, <laughs> but be, be that as it may, uh, mm-hmm. it was all done through German. I was quite proud of him. But yeah, um, but yeah I, I don't know. I, I think, he, again, I suppose it was the mutual fascination. I don't know if he necessarily understood the nuances of, like, say, North Germany and South Germany, the fact that they're very different places, or Austria is a completely different place. There is a sketch from The Late Late Show where he's playing a, a German character. It's on the RT archives. I came across it. and um, Oh, yeah. He, he Actually, he speaks a little German. He's kind of playing this mocking German industrialist uh, giving out about yeah. Ireland. But he actually could yeah. tell in that that he actually can speak German. I was really surprised to find it there. Yeah, no, he, he definitely can. I know he had an idea for, for a series involving a German cop. This is this myriad different schemes that he had going on um, when nobody would hire him. But I remember there was one, sketch, one series idea he had about a, a German policeman and a character called Falker Flossing. And actually, believe it or not, he was writing a novel around the time he died called The Kaiser Conspiracy, which was um, this idea that, that these people would kidnap Franz Beckenbauer. And again, that, that would have come from his love of John le Carre and Frederick Forsyth. Um, but I think he had the idea of doing a spoof version of this. Um, I have no idea where it ended up. I know he spent a lot of time on it, but that's all I know. Did he ever speak about afterwards uh, when Scrap Saturday was cut or axed or whatever from RTE? Because it was incredibly popular. And even incredibly important at the time as a piece of political satire. And uh, it just seemed to end when it was so popular. Did he speak about that? At the time, probably, uh, I wasn't necessarily as, as conscious of it. I was aware that he was annoyed about it. Uh, and like that, I think it was, it was quite well ventilated that he, he felt it had been it had been taken off air. I, again, in, in hindsight, I don't know how much of that is true. I know he would have been quite upset at, at the time. And he had a follow on a TV series that didn't go anywhere either. In similarly unpleasant or uncomfortable circumstances. And he was quite annoyed about that too. So that would have, he would have been very vocal about his frustration with RTE around that time. But again, like he wouldn't have gone, he wouldn't have said, you know, okay, son, sit down now. I, I know that you just got your heart broken by this girl who, who was not a keeper. I want to tell you this now. Uh, you know, the director general of RTE, what a scumbag. Like, he, wasn't, he wasn't doing anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's, that's, that's having no reflection of, of the fictitious director general of the RTE. Of RTE I'm referring to. But, but the thing is that, like, that, but you, you, you know yourself, you know when your parents are upset. Yeah. You know? yeah. And um, I, I do remember in, in Hugo Hamilton's. The speckled people. There's a great description of um, he describes his parents when when his mother comes comes into the room. She's been upset. He, she has black rings around her eyes. Um, and I, I, I we would have been kind of conscious on the very superficial level. Oh, he's come in and he's in a particular way. You know, he's he's lost another battle with RTE and 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 uh, and, and that. I do remember ta- talking to us about Father Ted all right. And when that was coming on, he was quite kind of cagey about it. I suppose it's hard to believe, but it, it probably was very controversial or very edgy at the time. That kind of how he was able to take on the church in that way. 
Do, do, do you think well, he was conscious of that? Well, I don't think he saw Ted in terms of taking on the church. I mean, it did have religion in it, which was obviously a thing for him. What I, I suppose appealed to him most was the idea of getting out of Ireland um, and getting in with, with Channel 4. Mm-hmm. He had done a character on, on the live mic in the early 80s called Father Trendy, which was would have been far more contentious at the time, I think, because of the fact it was like, you know, this unctuous priest, you know, trying to be cool and a bit glib. And, you know, I, I have a memory of, of like hate mail in okay. the house like I, there's, there's, I, I saw a letter years ago now I don't know if, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a false memory but I do remember the name of the person who wrote it and all this kind of stuff um, talking about him peddling his filth on the national broadcaster and whatnot I think that would have been far more contentious than than, than Ted although I, I believe the church was upset about it but I mean people take offence at anything they like mm. to, even to this day when it comes to religion Did you ever get a sense that it was a kind of precarious living because uh, sometimes he had lots of work and sometimes he hadn't would it have been the sense that uh, did he say I'll tell you what son uh, you're far better off getting getting a real job than trying to make a living out of being a comedian no, he would have been, well, we would have been aware about the fact that there would have been times where we were you know, up against it financially. It wasn't an easy life up until he died. Like it, it was it was always a precarious existence. The mid 80s were really, really bad. You know, for, first time RT really slammed the door on him, um, uh, which was 83, 84, like that kind of period would have been quite difficult. So, and like all the money was going to things like my parents wanted to send us to the German school. That was a fee paying school. So like any spare money was going into that kind of stuff. If you, if you, if you had a different life or maybe a different set of experiences, it might've been, it might've been different, but there wasn't really that much spare cash around, but he never would have told us do a, get a safe job or whatever like that. I mean, I, I got into teaching after college originally and, and the, the main, one of the main attractions was, was the security. I don't know was that a conscious decision, but anyway, I got out of it when I when I realised I I was bored out of my tree doing it. What were you teaching? Uh, German and English. Okay. Ten years in, I, I said no, I need to get out. So I went to the bar, which and so I'm self-employed now again. So I've it's all come full circle. I taught German as well for a while for at secondary school, and I'm not sure about yeah. your experience, but I don't think there was any novels or any plays or any poetry or anything. It was just mostly grammar. There's there's no. Uh, I mean, I don't know how. I, the methodology of it is certainly well improved from from this, this my day. I don't know what, what it was like when you were dead. That massively different in age, but I, I I think that you know if you tried to push things out, I found in my experience when you tried to put in it, like it was like an essay from Uva Tim or a short story or something like that, kids would tend to shut down a little bit. And again, I think that there is probably a very kind of sort of utilitarian kind of view of things that languages. Like I want to learn languages so I can get a job. I don't want to learn languages so I can read. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Stefan Zweig. <laughs> it's not that kind of a, a educational culture. Yeah, I think my well, experience I mean, the, the, in the school was a bit like that. The French teachers, were, it was some kind of important language, almost a classical language and had great kind of intellectual value or something. But the kids who were yeah. doing German, that might help you get a job in engineering because now Siemens was a big employer. That was yeah. kind of the, the notion behind it or something. Yeah, well, that, that was it. I mean, places like Lee down in, in Killarney and yeah. places like that would have been a great motivation or, or even in... in Carlo Town would have been Lepla, which is which is, which is a large employer. It's gone now, but the German language was always kind of promoted in those sorts of terms. I mean, of course, I mean G- Germany has absolutely no intellectual mm. culture at all. I mean, <laughs> Martin Luther for start. <laughs> but do, um, do you think, in a way, though, picking up on that, that the kind of success of the German industrial economy model makes people kind of see German as a language associated with that, and not as a romantic or intellectual language? And we don't really, again, hear so much. 
about that side of German culture? I don't know. I, I think to a certain extent that it was something that was relied upon. And one of the problems, is, as you might recall from, from your days of teaching, is that when you're teaching a language, it's not necessarily something that, it's not maths, it's not something that has to be there in a school. So you're constantly fighting to get people to choose your subject. Uh, and if you're put up against business studies or some other subject which might seem more practical, and you're saying, well, you know, guys, come on in and let's let's read Josef von Eichendorf. You know, <laughs> let's I got a really cool little poem from Robert Gernhardt. You're gonna love it. I mean, they're gonna go, Are you crazy? I'll go and do applied maths and I'll become an engineer, thanks yeah. very much. So you sort of have to play that game in this country. And and the idea of learning for the sake of learning is not something that we're we're getting better at it, I suppose, but it's not something that we're that comes to us naturally. And that again is because we education was a, an economic tool uh, to a large extent. And I suppose even with that, um, there was a kind of probably pre-Second World War, maybe even pre-First World War, quite a romantic notion of Germany with their kind of poets and their romantic road and even the the Schwarzwald, that kind of world of German mythical things. Do, do, yeah. do, you, think that's, do you think that's been entirely lost or is in, in, in terms of the German identity, is there any of that left? No, I, I don't think that it's lost. And there's certainly like, I mean, again, I think Irish people are very sentimental, but I don't think they're as romantic as, as German people are like that in that 19th century sort of way. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of that kind of um, sort of heartfelt way of looking at the world is something that, that, that Germans have. They do have a great kind of um, mythical sort of uh, or, or traditional kind of fantastical storytelling, you know, and, and there are things that Irish people should kind of I mean relate to the adventures of Baron Munchausen for instance which is my favourite kind of stories or a series of stories which is about a guy who tell, t- tells tall tales I mean that's, that's he might as well have been from Ireland and actually yeah. ironically the guy who, who wrote the book Rudolf Irish Raspa is buried in Killarney which is mm-hmm. which is another great another great county for, for tall tales and, and you know ways with language which is which is Kerry I, how, how come he ended up buried in Killarney? What? Because he ended up as a prospector down down in Kerry, and he caught typhus or something like that. And he, he was buried there. When you say um, prospector, like gold, I have no idea what the minerals okay, were. Yeah. Uh, some, yeah. Something like gold or copper, something that was valuable. So anyway. the writer of Baron Munchausen also was a mineral prospector, and he ended up in Kerry. He, uh, he was a he was a con man. He was brilliant, okay. and uh, he was um, he'd been the librarian of the Duke of. Braunschweig or somewhere like Brunswick and uh, I think defrauded him ended up in England you know where he published these tall tales that were based upon this real Baron Munchausen who then tried to sue him and then he ended up destitute in, in Kerry and I think people like that that kind of those sort of roguish kind of slightly fantastical people I think they would appeal to the Irish yeah, um, yeah. and I th- and I think that a lot of people who, who are involved in German or who teach German or who have you know a connection with Germany who are Irish I think they would kind of feel you know that they would get a bit of the the whatever is the, the vibe of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of Germany, which is which is different to the Irish. Are there things about the German world, the German culture or German people perhaps that um, Irish people really miss out on and just don't get and that they would be, that there'd be a lot for, a lot of even just simple enjoyment. I mean, you know, Irish people might think of French film or something like that, but not so much German yeah. film. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, look, there's there's great German music, there's great German cinema. There still is some being put out. I think Babylon Berlin is supposed to be really, really good. Again, I haven't seen it because I've spent the last five years having a family, so I'm kind of busy with that sort of stuff. But it's a very vibrant country, and there's there's a great body of stuff there. If you want to go all the way into the back, uh, into history, and all the way into today, there's loads of stuff there that's really, really good, really worthwhile. I think the things that, that I think Irish people miss out on about Germany by not meeting Germans or getting to know them as well. German people are very sincere. 
and they can be very cagey at the start. But if you make a, a, a German friend, they'll be your friend for life. They'll carry your coffin. You know, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll be so loyal to you and they will, they will always be way better friends to you than you will be to them. And that Irish thing of saying yes when you mean no and no when you mean yes. Our Germans don't do that. They just say yes or no. And, and actually it's kind of liberating because you don't have to play that little game. Uh, it it I, can I, be quite shocking at first though when they say no. When yeah. you'd expect them to say maybe or we'll yeah, see sort of, or yeah. perhaps later. Or your grand. I, 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 I once made a suggestion to someone years ago here in Ireland that said, uh, well, we could do this. And, and I said, oh, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. What the meant was go away and stop annoying me. <laughs> and I, I, and again, I was, I was deaf to it. I didn't realize what that was. I didn't understand the subtext. But I, th- I think stuff like that. I do think as well, I mean, you know, if Irish people were able to access things like, I know Lorio was always kind of rolled out. I love Lorio because he's, he's this whimsical, strange, he, he does a lot of wordplay comedy. Otto Valkis as well. Otto, who I, because he's from the north of Germany, I feel very fond of. He's like somewhere between Steve Martin and Billy Connolly, but almost more naive. He's really, really kind of like almost childlike. And I love that. And, and even with things like musicians, whatever else, I was thinking Anna Diepenbusch, who's a singer from Hamburg. She can turn out a song and make it sound beautiful, but she has a turn of phrase, which is in, incredible. She has a song called Tim Lieb Tina, where she goes through all these different people. Tim loves Tina, but Tina loves Klaus. And he goes all yeah. the way around, he gets all the way back to the, but Tim loves Tina. <laughs> and again, I think that kind of, that, that sort of flight of fancy, I think is something that would appeal to us if we could just get into it. There is kind of a quite a, a earthy or almost lewd part of the German uh, uh, sense of humour as well. I mean, um, sometimes that we don't really see. The old fashioned kind of German cabaret is still still alive and well. I remember seeing a cabaret in, in Hamburg, actually, uh, a few years back. And I was just surprised at how um, kind of like mixing some songs and some silly songs and some rude songs with a little bit of stand up and stuff. But it's it's quite earthy. Is that, is that a fair description? I think that is. I mean, I was saying, when you said earthy, I was thinking of a very rude joke my friend from Castle told me years ago, which, I can't, which is, oh, no, no, it's actually completely <laughs> unbroadcastable. But, but it involved private health insurance. Um, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I haven't been to a, a cabaret in, God, nearly 20 years. I went to one in Leipzig because it was a sort of regional cabaret as well. So it was playing with the local identity as well. And that was a lot of fun. But yeah, and as well, it could be it could be quite dangerous satire as well. Like it's not just like laugh out loud, funny stuff and putting on silly voices. Some of the really go for the go for the jugular, and it's on late night TV as well. Now the final wrap up uh, question was perhaps coming back to that sense of identity thing again. And do you feel maybe, particularly uh, after Brexit, with us being the English speaking country in the EU, that um, maybe would you think there's a sense that, uh, particularly with your own background, with your own uh, split cultural background, that uh, you're more European than Irish people might normally feel? Well, I I definitely feel like an outsider in Ireland, but I've always felt like an outsider in Ireland. And, you know, my dad was a homegrown outsider. My mother's an actual outsider. So I've never felt particularly Irish anyway. And the older I get, the more German and more European I feel. But it makes me sad when I look at Europe today and, you know, they tolerate the Orbans of this world and they don't speak up for... Like when when I think of my grandparents, what they experienced in the Second World War, and they were at pains to make sure that we were tolerant of other people and other people's views and would have been very like you know that's the gun gazettes this is you know this is the way it has to be mm-hmm. and it was the categorical imperative and, and that kind of that kind of cowardly europe i i, I don't subscribe to but the, the the europe of schumann and you know adenauer and helmut schmidt and spark and these people and dennis healy the great dennis healy and and as far, i remember being really moved seeing him talk about you know fighting in italy and and he was leading the charge into Europe in the 70s. Those are the people, and Sean Lamas, those are the people who I would see as great 
Europeans who I would I would look up to, but I would definitely feel more European. But I think for Ireland, the fact that Brexit, it means that the apron strings have been finally ripped from us. So we have to make it and we have to make it work and we don't need them. Like I said, German people are very positively disposed towards Ireland. It would be a great failure of our own imagination not to make the best of that because they want to be our friends and they want to trade with us and they want us to be part of and we gave them Christianity so we might as well give them you know more butter Okay Donica I think that's probably a, a good note to to wrap up on so vielen Dank and auf Wiederhören Bitteschön 